0: is where we are. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand in the air. Someone will bring one to you. Uh, we're working our way through this book, 1 uh, Corinthians. The first six chapters, we saw the Apostle Paul was dealing with these bad reports that he'd received about that church there. Uh, what's exciting now, in the next half of the book, uh, Paul is going to be dealing with specific questions that they sent to him. Uh, one of the interesting things, though, that you have to prepare yourself for Uh, is, uh, number one, that we have the answers, we don't have the questions. So this is a lot like Jeopardy. So we're gonna have to read his answers and see if we can figure out what the question was. So that'll make it a little bit more exciting for us. Uh, The other thing is, uh, if you had the chance to ask the Apostle Paul, Uh, any question, it's going to be hard questions. And so we're going to have to deal with this. Some of these questions are going to be very difficult questions for us to to handle, uh, sometimes because of the deep theology, but sometimes just because the things that they're asking are real deal difficult situations in their world that match up with real deal difficult situations in our world. And that's what it's going to be like tonight as we go through 1 Corinthians 7 Paul's going to be dealing with marriage, divorce, remarriage, widowhood, singleness. He's going to be dealing with all of those things in chapter 7 tonight. Uh, And I just know, I know people's lives, and I know that uh, uh, for some people, these things might be a little touchy or a little sensitive subjects for them. But let's just work through the passages and let the passages teach us. Let's see what the Word of God has for us and uh, then respond to it appropriately. Now, because it is such a long chapter and because it is... Uh, going to have a lot of uh, confusing things that Paul's going to try to do. Let me just give you a standard answer that Paul has when it comes to marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness, widowhood, all of those things. Uh, Paul's standard answer in all of these circumstances is that we should glorify God where you are because God assigned you to that position, called you to it, and is with you in it. And so those are the things that we need to keep in mind, that first and foremost, where you are right now, God knows about it. It's not a shock, it's not a surprise to him. So we need to ask ourselves in our current circumstances, our current relationship status, how is it that we can best honor and glorify God? And so let's look at it from those eyes. Now with that being the standard thing that Paul says, the other thing I want you to notice as we go through this chapter is you're gonna see the word but a lot, one T, not two, B-U-T, you're gonna see that word a lot in this passage, because Paul's going to say this is what I prefer, but there's this situation and there's this situation and there's this situation. So, if you've paid any attention to uh, relationships in your life or in the lives of the people around you, you do realize that there are a lot of of, of messy, sticky situations that we kind of have to navigate through with the word, and Paul does. Uh, A pretty bold job of trying to hit as many of those as possible in these 40 verses. But if we're going to get to them, I need to read. So let's start here in verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. But the wife does not have authority over her own body, the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, verse 1 there, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. So you have to guess what was the question now. It seems to be, particularly from that first response, but also through the way that Paul is going to answer the rest of the questions, that uh, they may have asked him the question, are, are we better off to just be single people? It seems like that might be the question that was asked, and it's going to lead Paul into saying, yes, basically, he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. You're going to see Paul go back to that idea of singleness all throughout these verses. But then he has to explain, though, yes, that might be good for you to be single, but... And then he gives his reason why it may not always be good to be single. Here in verse 2, but because of immoralities... Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. In other words, Paul recognizes this very real circumstance that we find ourselves in the world Uh, that we do have struggles with lust and sexual immorality, that there's a real struggle in the world with those things. Uh, This isn't something new that we see in the United States of America today. It was going on in Corinth. Uh, It was just as difficult of a problem there, probably more so in some ways, uh, because they were even more uh, involved in some things that were sexually uncomfortable. Uh, But that being said, Paul says, one of the reasons God gave us marriage is to prevent us from following our sexual desires to places they shouldn't go. That's one of the reasons he gave us marriage. So he tells us, in that circumstance, because of that, you should in fact get married if you're struggling in that area. Not the most romantic reason for marriage, by the way, if you're ever at a wedding ceremony and the pastor says, because these two can't handle their business, we're gonna have to now get them married, like that's not the romance that everybody's looking for, Uh, but there's just a reality to that. So Paul makes it very clear here in verse 3, the way this works. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife also to her husband. And then he says something revolutionary here in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And, and this is the revolutionary part, likewise. Also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So this was a revolutionary type of equality that Paul is describing there that would have been a foreign concept to them, Uh, that throughout history in most cultures, you'll see kind of this male-dominated idea, uh, particularly back in history, uh, where the question wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a big deal for somebody to say that the man has authority over the woman. That wouldn't be a big deal. The part that's a big deal here is Paul says, in the same way or likewise, the wife has authority over her husband's body. There's something very valuable in what he's trying to explain there. Uh, Just in a very practical sense, though, I would say it like this, and and, uh, I know I'm probably going to be touching on some sensitive ears tonight, but uh, when I do premarital counseling with people, uh, I explain to these young couples, like, you need to understand that sex is not just for your pleasure, but your responsibility as a spouse is your job is to make sure it brings pleasure to your spouse. And if you can both kind of think of it in those terms, uh, it does give you some uh, freedom and some protection in there to think of it in those terms. It's, it's, it's really just the, the way the gospel works anyway. It's not about selfishness. It's not always about me. It's always about serving the other person. That's the way it should work uh, in marriage. Paul takes it a step further, though. He says, not only that, when you don't, when you deprive one another, Satan will take advantage of that to bring destruction into your marriage. Uh, He says that there in verse 5 Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come back together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Uh, Satan's not a dummy. He knows when it's time to attack. And he will use those opportunities when you're having difficulties in that area, maybe, or maybe because you're separated because of work or whatever it happens to be, but you have to be apart from one another for a while. Uh, maybe it's a situation where there's medical issues going on, but Satan will take advantage of that, and when he knows that you're most going to struggle in that area, that's when he's going to bring those temptations in, and he does, does it because he wants to destroy your family, because your family is a representation of God in the church. Your family represents the things of the, of the kingdom of God to the world, and when we can handle those things rightly, it's powerful. But if Satan can destroy that picture, he's going to go all out to do it. And so what I say is if you find yourself in those circumstances where for whatever reason uh, you need to be a part in that area of your life, go into it with your eyes open. Number one. Make an agreement. Like, we agree that we're going to do this for a time. We're both on the same page. It doesn't work if just one of you agrees for the both of you that you're out of that category for a while, but there's just going to be things that come up in your life where you just need to say, we're going to put this off for a while, but you both are in agreement. Uh, number two, devote it to prayer because you recognize that Satan is out to get you. Uh, again, there's, there's many legitimate reasons why you have to deprive one another for a time. Uh, one of the ones that I think people forget about is Man, kids just don't always want to sleep in their own bed. They just ruin night-night time, right? Like they're just going to like be crawling up in your bed and so you just got to know like this is just the phase of life we're in right now. Let's be wise about it. Let's not let Satan take advantage of this time. Now, that's his idea on marriage. But what Paul really prefers is singleness, verse 6. This I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I am. But if you do not have self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, Paul has this this real drive within him to singleness. Now we want want to understand this uh, because historically people believe Paul actually was probably married at least for a portion of his life. Um, And so uh, you can kind of look through how that would happen Uh, because he was part of the Sanhedrin. One of the requirements of being in the Sanhedrin was that you had to be married. The second way people would come to that conclusion, uh, the Jews uh, by default believed that marriage was required by God. They would look at the creation of marriage in the Old Testament and the command of God to be fruitful and multiply. And so they would say, I am following the command of God by getting married. So for a Jewish man to not be married at that time, it would have been an odd thing. It would have been outside of the character. So now Paul comes in and says, no, I wish you guys were all single, just like me. So Paul is probably single in these circumstances. We just don't know why. Is it because he never married? Is it because uh, he was divorced? Or is it because his wife had passed away? We don't know what the specific circumstances is. But what we do know is that Paul prefers singleness, so much so that he even calls it a gift in verse 7. And that's something you'll see other places in scripture. Jesus talks a little bit that, about that as well in the gospel of Matthew uh, in chapter uh, 19. Uh, there are just some people that God designed to be single. Our culture looks at that as if it's some sort of weird thing. It's not a weird thing. There are some people that God has just designed to be single and we try to force them into this other category that's actually uncomfortable for them and, and, and unnatural for them. But there's just some people that are supposed to be single. But again, Paul puts this reminder in there, if you don't have self-control, you should marry. Self-control uh, is, is uh, I'm sorry, marriage is a preventative to sexual immorality. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that any time a spouse is involved in sexual immorality, that it's the, the, so let's say the husband has an affair. That doesn't mean it's the wife's fault. The husband will always be responsible for his own sin. He's the one who sinned. She might have been involved in this by uh, not uh, making herself available in that area. It might have increased the temptation, but ultimately he's responsible for his own sin every single time. Every single time. And the same goes the other way around. So yes, what we need to do is we need to use marriage as a preventative to sin. But in the end, the person who sins is guilty of their own sin. So moving on now to verse 10. Let's move away from the uncomfortable things of the marriage bedroom and singleness to an even more uncomfortable topic of divorce. Here we go. We're just moving right into the good stuff. Paul loves to make me uncomfortable. I don't know if he does that to you, but he just always like makes me preach through these things that I was like, I wouldn't preach this if I wasn't going through the Bible. But verse 10, "'To the married I give instructions, "'not I, but the Lord, "'that the wife should not leave her husband. "'But if she does leave, she must remain unmar- unmarried "'or else be reconciled to her husband, "'that the husband should not divorce the wife.' But to the rest I say not the lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him he must not divorce her and a woman who has been an, has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her she must not send her husband away for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband for otherwise your children are unclean but now they are holy yet If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, again, Paul's answer to all of these situations is, wherever you are right now, glorify God in that circumstance. And so to the married, he says, You should not get divorced. That's what he says to the married. You should not get divorced. That is his answer overall to the question of whether or not people should get divorced. You shouldn't. But Paul's also a realist. He understands that sin has entered into the world and it's caused all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of problems that we have to now somehow deal with. And so you can see there in verse 10... I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. He's making it clear who this is coming from. The wife should not leave her husband. Verse 11, there's that magic word all throughout this passage. But, wife shouldn't get divorced, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And then the same thing goes for the husband who should not divorce his wife. So Paul gives us the standard, remain in the circumstance you are. You should not get divorced. But if you do get divorced, you should remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. Now, I don't have the full amount of time to take you through every detail and every nuance of how all of this works. Last time I taught through 1 Corinthians 7, I I did it over the course of a month, so I'm trying to get it here in just a handful of minutes, so it's a lot to cover, Uh, but just know that's his standard answer you shouldn't, but if you do, you should remain single or be reconciled to your spouse. That's his general teaching on the idea of divorce. He also then wants to talk about those who are married to somebody who is an unbeliever. So in verse 12, To the rest I say, not the Lord. Interesting phrase there. To the rest I say, not the Lord. Paul's going to give us his opinion here, and he does that throughout this, but I feel like we can trust his opinion because he is the Apostle Paul. He's indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and God chose to record it in the Scriptures. Of course, you can look at it another way. God chose to record, this is Paul's opinion in the scriptures. So maybe it isn't, it's just, if you've ever tried to think through this, believe me, it's an infinite loop. I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg in this case. I don't know if this is is God saying, I just want you to know that's Paul's opinion, or if this is God saying, I agree with Paul's opinion, that's why I put it in the scripture. You figure it out for yourself sometime. Uh, but I spent way too much time this week trying to logic my way through it. And what I came up with is, it's nice of Paul to point out when he's not 100% Uh, Clear here that he's saying that this is the Lord's will versus his understanding of the Lord's will. I think that's an important thing that we do. But here's what he says to those who are married to an unbeliever He says, if the unbeliever wants to stay, you should stay married. If the unbeliever, again, remain where you are. That's his general answer. In your current circumstances, glorify God in those circumstances. And so if you happen to be married to an unbeliever, he would say, stay married to that unbeliever. Unless, and now here's his caveat, he just keeps doing this to us, right? It'd be so much easier if he would have just started with that one phrase, in your current circumstance, glorify God, and just left it there, right? But he's going to explain now, here's an example, an unless, a but. But if the unbeliever leaves... Now you're free. You're not under bondage to that person anymore. And so I take that to mean that that person has permission to remarry because the unbeliever has left. They have permission now to to remarry. But Paul doesn't want that. What he wants is you to stay married to that unbeliever, and he gives his reasons why, and essentially it is, it may lead to their salvation. Now that is again another interesting passage there. He says uh, that they are somehow sanctified through their believing spouse, that their children are holy. But let's not get the word sanctified set apart, confused with the word saved. You see, this is a problem that uh, we have theologically that we have to solve. There are some churches that baptize babies in part because they read this, that because the parents are believers, the child is holy, therefore we would baptize the child. They won't take it, though, to its logical conclusion in this passage because he says an unbelieving spouse is sanctified. Well, they wouldn't, but they wouldn't baptize an unbelieving adult who just happens to be married to a Christian. They wouldn't do that. It wouldn't make sense logically. In addition to that, Paul's point is they're not saved. They're unbelievers, and their outcome might be, in verse 16, that they would get saved. This is not an endorsement of evangelical dating, by the way. Like I'm just gonna go out and find some unbeliever, I'll get married to him, and through my marriage I'm gonna bring him to Christ. No, this is if you just happen to be in that circumstance, for a number of reasons it could happen, right? I, I think one of the reasons you could find yourself in an uncircum- in a circumstance where you're married to an unbeliever, you were both unbelievers when you got married, then you got saved. Now things are complicated. Another reason you could find yourself married to an unbeliever is sometimes people say the right Christian things and make you feel like they're a believer. But when the rubber hits the road, you realize they just have kind of a Christian tradition, but they don't actually believe in any of it. Another reason you might find yourself married to an unbeliever is sin. You've just chosen to be married to an unbeliever. But in that circumstance, Paul's general instructions are, you should remain as you are because God's called you into that find a way to glorify God in that circumstance. But if they leave, you're free of bondage. You haven't sinned in any way by being in that divorce because the unbeliever left. Okay, now we get to what I call the ugly chart. So years ago, um, probably 20 years ago, somebody asked me to explain all of this to them and it wasn't just like an ask, like I just have this theological question. It was like, I'm considering a divorce. I need you to explain the scriptures to me. And so I created this chart. I call it the ugly chart uh, because it's really just not that attractive, uh, but also because if I'm working through this chart with you, there's some ugliness going on in your life right now. So uh, I, don't, uh, I don't want to um, make it feel like this is just this, this uh, logical flow of thought. No, there's real pain involved if we're going through this chart, Right? So I came up with this list of questions. I took all the passages. Again, I don't have time to take you through every step of it, uh, but just know this. If you want to study this out for yourself, Matthew chapter 19, Romans chapter 7, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you take those three sections of scripture, you can kind of work through this. What I do is I ask them a series of questions. Number one, are you both believers? If the answer is yes, then we work down the yes side. If the answer is no, then we work down the no side. And I take them through these various questions to see if we can come to a place where we have a greater understanding on whether or not you should divorce. And so another question I might ask if they're both believers, was your spouse guilty of fornication? If they say yes, then a further question, is your heart hardened to the idea of forgiveness? And then we just kind of work our way through this patterned thing to ultimately get to the idea of if there is a, 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 a biblical way to glorify God in your circumstance. That's what we want to do. We just want to find a way to work through this in a biblical way. This isn't to put restraints on people. This is to give oppor- people opportunities to recognize that God can be glorified even in their uncomfortable relationship. Even in their difficult, painful relationships. God can still be glorified in those things if we're submitted to doing things in his way. And I know that doesn't answer all the questions you have. It doesn't answer all the questions that are out there. I'd love to work through that sometime with you if you have those types of questions. Paul, though, wants to illustrate his primary answer that you should remain as you are. So that's what he's going to do in verses 17 through 24. He's going to use two different pictures to illustrate this concept. He's going to use the picture of circumcision. He's going to use the picture of slavery. Don't read this wrong. He's not saying marriage is just like circumcision and slavery. That's not what he's saying. He's just using these as ideas to help us illustrate your point that you should remain as you are right now. So here's what he says in verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, In this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But, and here he goes again, throwing another but in there. But, if you're able to become free, rather do that, because that's way better than slavery, right? For he who has called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Again, Paul's default answer, remain in that condition you are right now and find out how to glorify God in that. But he gives us some encouraging things in both verse 17 and verse 24. In verse 17, he says this, the Lord has assigned you and God has called you, so walk in it. And then in verse 24, remain with God, so God is with you. Uh, In this way, I would look at it like this. Your circumstances have been assigned by God and you're God's called person in that circumstance. And he is with you in that circumstance. You're not alone. You're not alone in these things. And God is not unaware of the difficulty that you have in your marriage or the difficulty that you have being single or the difficulty that you have being a divorced person. God's not unaware of those things. He's saying, since those are your circumstances, and you are one of my called out people, in that circumstance, live in such a way to give glory to God. in whatever circumstance you find yourself in, however you got there, whether it was because of sin or just a bad deal, right? Sometimes there's just bad things that happen. Sometimes it's choices of sin. But if that's the circumstance you find yourself in, glorify God in that circumstance. This is the thing that I have to kind of break you of in this passage. Some of you are thinking about your past right now, and you're going through your past and asking the questions, was this right, was this wrong, did I handle this right, did I handle this wrong? I'm asking you not to think about your past, I'm asking you to think about your present circumstances, where you are right now, today, whatever your relationship status says on Facebook right now, even if it says it's complicated, In your complicated situation, live to glorify God where you are right now. That's Paul's default answer. And he wants you to know that God has seen you as his called person in your assigned circumstance of life. And he's with you in it. That you can, in fact, glorify God through your circumstances. Not that the things that got you to your circumstances glorify God. But because you are in those circumstances, you can still choose to glorify God where you are today. Verse 25. This is what I would call part two to his question. And again, Paul's just trying to watch me squirm. He says this Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. But I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. So his next question is going to be dealing with the question of, of virgins, and we'll find in verse thirty-six that it's actually a little complicated what he's actually being, uh, what he's actually responding to there. But in typical Paul fashion, even though he introduces the question here, he's not really going to answer the question until verse thirty-six. Verse twenty-six through verse twenty-five, he's going to go back to his 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 uh, idea of remaining as you are and he's going to give you three reasons why you should remain as you are right now. So before he ever answers this question that they seem to be asking in verse 25, he's going to give us some reasons why we should stay as we are. So verse 26. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Paul just loves marriage. But this I say, brethren the time has been shortened. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, But to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Here, Paul is giving his opinion, right? He's giving his opinion. In this particular circumstance, somebody else had an opinion they wanted to give out there, but uh, in this particular circumstance, Paul says, I'm giving you my opinion. In other words, there's no command from God on this, but he just wants you to know that his opinion is to benefit you. He's not trying to put a new restraint on you. He's not trying to give you a bunch of rules, right? He just wants you to have his opinion. This is why he thinks that you should not get married, and he's going to give three reasons. Number one, given to us there in verse 26, In view of the present distress, he doesn't tell us what the present distress is, but something was going on in the world or in Corinth at that time that Paul said, things are so crazy right now, I don't think it's the best time to plan a wedding. It's just that nutso in the world. Maybe you might want to hold off on this one. And so there might have just been some things going on locally in Corinth. He doesn't tell us. I know for me, when I look at the world, sometimes I think to myself, why would anybody want to bring a family into this world, right? It's just crazy out there. But it's really not all that much crazier than it was during the time of Paul. I want you to understand that. The difference between now and the time of Paul is we get to see it and hear about it every single minute of every single day because of the internet, But it's not like they didn't have war during the time of Paul. It's not like they didn't have pestilence during the time of Paul. It's not like they didn't have sexual immorality during the time of Paul. They had all of those things back then. But there was something that Paul was looking at in his world at that time that he said, this is just a pretty bad time to be worrying about a wedding. It's just not the best time for it. That doesn't have a universal long-term application, but it might in certain circumstances. It might just be that your world is in such chaos, don't throw a marriage on top of it. That might be the thing that he's saying for us to think through today. The second reason he gives in verse 29, he says, The time has been shortened. He's talking here about the end times. Paul, like every generation of believers, is is trying to live as if Jesus Christ could come back right this instant. If that's the case, that that Jesus come back right this instant, then maybe, maybe marriage isn't the most important thing. If I believe that Jesus come back anytime, maybe the most important thing is that I tell people about Jesus. So he's saying one of the reasons you might want to stay single is because the return of Jesus Christ. But again, this isn't a law for everybody of all time. And what I mean by that is he's not giving us a a law. He's giving us an option to stay single. He's telling us that singleness is actually, it's a a good option. And one of the reasons is because the end of times, but if he was giving us an instruction that all people should stop having, uh, stop getting married and stop having children, the human race would have ended, right? So thankfully they didn't all follow that opinion. It was just an option that he was putting out there. Singleness is an option. And then his third reason that he lays out for us is in verse 32 through 35 is this, I want you to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. That the married person sometimes now has a distraction and they have to somehow be pleasing to God and pleasing to their spouse. And that takes a little bit extra work, doesn't it? Paul says, I want you to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's what I want you to have, undistracted devotion to the Lord to the Lord. So uh, interesting, though, to think through this. Years ago, Pastor Ron, we were doing a men's retreat, and he said, Sean, I want you to teach a session called Super Successful Singleness. And I said, well, I'm married, so that seems weird. And he says, yeah, so you were pretty successful during your single years. You found a wife, right? Like, that's how he was viewing it. But when I studied it out, I viewed it completely different. What I want to say is to those who are single that your primary focus should be to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. As you have undistracted devotion to the Lord, you are becoming a better man or woman of God. You're growing in your faith. And if God brings you into a circumstance where you're to be married at some point, you're now becoming the man or woman of God that your future spouse deserves. You see, your time of singleness can be used To grow in your faith so that you can be also now a godly person in your marriage. And now I'm going to give an opinion. So Paul's given his a couple of times. It's time for me. The scriptures in general are not down on marriage. It sounds like it if you take this one chapter as if it's the only chapter in the Bible. But it's not the only chapter in the Bible. God created marriage and it is good. That's what he said when he created it. It is good. And I can also tell you this, if you marry somebody who is devoted to the Lord, you can become an encouragement to one another. And you can build each other up, and you can become a team. I can tell you, and I've told many people this over the years, I am a better Christian because of my wife. That she has, through her actions and through her prayers, she has made me a better man of God. I'm a better pastor because of my wife. She is my God-ordained helpmate. She has helped me grow in my faith. So if you can find a spouse who is devoted to the Lord with you, man, you've found a good thing. It's powerful and it's important. My advice to single people, I, I stole this from others that have told me this over the years, uh, run after God as hard as you can. And when you start to feel like you want to get married, look around and see who's running with you. Maybe your spouse is amidst that group. Verse 36, Paul now is going to answer this complicated question about virgins. Um, and it's complicated because of the original language. It's hard to tell what he's actually um, trying to say. It's also hard to tell what they were actually asking. But here's what he says in verse 36. If any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter, if she has past her youth... And if it is so, it is to be so. Let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. Dads, did you hear that? Let her marry. Just want to point that out. All right. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own daughter, he will do well. So then, he who gives his his daughter his virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. So the translator has added the word daughter in here. You can tell that because it's in italics. And he's hoping to give a little bit of clarity to the passage. But I will just tell you that there's probably two different ways to look at this passage. Yes, it could be about a father who has authority over his children, right? Their marriage, whether or not they should get married or not. He has authority. It could be talking about that. But honestly, it could just be uh, talking to a man who's found a woman, who he loves. And he's trying to make the decision, should I get married or not? In this answer that Paul gives here, again, he's going to point out it's not sinful if you marry, but it's also not sinful if you decide not to get married, if you decide to be single. Neither one of those is a sinful choice. He wants us to just think through it. But what he ultimately says in verse 36 is, hey, if you're acting unbecomingly, then let her marry. And what I think he would say, if he's saying this to fathers, I think what he's saying is there are some dads who just don't ever want their daughters to get married. They just want to keep them for their cell. You never get married. She's too important to me. I just can't imagine some other man touching her or whatever it is. And so dads get super protective of their daughters. Can I say, if your daughter is desiring marriage and you continually force her to put it off and put it off, You're setting her up to sin. We've done this crazy thing in our culture where we've basically said, you shouldn't get married until you're ready, which means you've been through college, you've got a job, you've got a house, your whole world is figured out. And so now we see this trend where people used to get married like in their late teens and now people are waiting sometimes until their 30s to get married. And they think to themselves that I'm doing this so that I can be ready for marriage. But what you're actually doing is you're putting yourself in this situation where you now have God-given desires that are being put off. And so what people do is they do the marriage act. They're involved in sexuality, whether it's through uh, just dating all the time and sleeping around, or sometimes they'll just move in with somebody or whatever it is. They're just doing those things that look like marriage that don't have the commitment of marriage. We put them in that bad situation where we tell them, oh, you shouldn't get married. Fathers, let me do this. And another father taught me this years ago. Let me just say this to you, fathers. Pray for your children to find a spouse. Pray for them to have a happy marriage, even when they're little. What that does is they hear you praying it for them, right? So they recognize you're giving them permission to marry. The other thing it does is it allows God to prepare you for that marriage day. So when Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright come along for your child, you can have joy in your heart for them. You want them to experience the joys of marriage. But again, if it does work out that you have a child who's just not uh, one who's interested in marriage, there's nothing wrong with having them just stay with you in your household and care for them, and they can be a part of your family in that way. There's just some people that God hasn't called to marriage, and that's okay. And then now the last one, verse 39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. So you might recall this from your own wedding ceremony or wedding ceremonies that you've been to in the past. But the vows were until death do us heart. Paul is saying, if your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. But again, what's his answer? You're just better off to remain on you as you are. In your circumstances, glorify God. But if you find yourself desiring after that to be married, it's okay. Years ago, Sheila and I were talking to our, our, our lawyer. We don't actually have a lawyer. We hired a guy, right? But just for that one thing, it's not like we just have a lawyer hanging around. Um, But we were doing our will. And in here, he's like, Sean, when you die, where do you want all your money to go? I'm like, if there is any, (laughs) give it all to Sheila. Okay. Well, what if Sheila decides that she wants to run off with some other man? I'm like, in this scenario, I'm dead, right? Sheila, take all my money and run off with some other man? I don't care. I'm dead. Like, that was the end of the marriage vow. It's okay for a widow to remarry, but she doesn't have to remarry. It's an option that she has there. So now we want to talk just briefly about this idea of remarriage. And so I would say this, in certain circumstances, if you had previously been married, you can remarry. And so here are the circumstances. And we'll just kind of work our way thinking back through this passage. The first way in this passage that I think is there is that uh, if you are divorced and you remarry your ex-spouse, that's option number one. The second way, if you're uh, in a marriage and then you're not in a marriage, is if you had an unbeliever who leaves, you're free to marry any other believer at this point. And I like that point that Paul makes here when he's talking about the the widow. She can remarry whom she wishes only in the Lord. Like that's an important piece of this. Another way this could happen is if your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. And then I'll add one more that I get from the teaching of Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 19 is if your marriage ended because your spouse was unfaithful then I do believe you have the ability to remarry, not the requirement to remarry. You don't even have the requirement to divorce them. You can actually forgive them and work through it, right? But if you end up in that circumstance, I do think you have the biblical ability to remarry. And then I would say to that as well, is if your ex-spouse marries somebody else, there's no chance for you to remarry your ex-spouse. And so now you're freed up to remarry. So those are the scenarios. I always tell people though, if you're in a situation where you've been divorced and you're looking to remarry and you're waiting for your spouse to either remarry or die, you can't help them do either of those things. They have to sort those two things else out on their own. You're not allowed to help them remarry somebody else or die. That's not your position. But the idea again going back to Paul's general teaching, even with all of the buts that he put in there and all of the exceptions, The circumstances that you're in, God's aware of them. And he's asking you to think through your circumstances and say, how can I best glorify God in my current circumstances? And that might mean that you stay in an uncomfortable place, but in that uncomfortable place, you glorify God. Amen? Well, that was fun. I think sometimes people just come to church to see me squirm. Let's see what the Bible's going to do to Sean today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I know I make light of some of these things um, because it's just easier to kind of work our way through them. Uh, But at the same time, I know that uh, for some of these things that we looked at today, uh, these would be real painful for people. Lord, I would pray for anybody that's hearing this message, that if there's pain points from this message, that they would take the time to pray through it, to study it out for themselves, to to follow up with me and ask questions. But they would have as their ultimate desire in their situation, as painful as that situation may be, their ultimate desire would be to ask the question, how can they glorify you in their circumstances? How can they live up to your desires for them? How can they be a light in the midst of the darkness there? Father, where there is pain, would you bring healing? And would you bring peace? Where there's sin, would you bring repentance? Father, where there's been confusion over the years, would you bring clarity? Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.